If you're wondering how to navigate difficult relationships, communicate more skillfully, regulate your nervous system in the midst of conflict, and set fierce boundaries that heal and empower, you are in the right place. You belong, right here where you already are. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy, and I invite you to grab a cup of tea and your favorite blanket and rest as you join me on this journey home to yourself. Welcome back to the Welcome You podcast. This is episode three. Today, we are going to be talking about honoring the wisdom of avoidance and how to heal your relationship to yourself after abuse. And before we dive in, I do want to mention that some of the material in this episode may be potentially triggering. It's really important to take care of yourself and to remember to anchor your attention with some resources in the present moment. If you find yourself getting overwhelmed or triggered, you can return your attention to something like your breath or an object. Maybe you have an object from nature. You might anchor your attention with the sensations of gravity in your body or with sounds. And please know that if you need to pause the recording or stop listening in order to regulate yourself or to just take a break, I won't take it personally. I also want to say that the content that I'm going to be sharing today is quite alive for me in the, in the present moment, some unfolding situations that have stirred up a lot of feelings of righteous anger and some fire within me. And my intention in this episode is to channel that energy for those of you who may feel stuck or trapped in abusive relationships and really offer you some applicable, real-world, practical skills for taking your power back and embodying the worthiness and the self-love that are required to stand up for your right to safety and to reclaim your voice and really to recover your sense of self, which is what is taken from us when we are abused. So as we dive into this material, just giving yourself permission here to ground yourself and to care for yourself in whatever way is needed. So my friend was ready to give up on herself. She was texting me pictures of the bruises on her neck from where her abuser choked her. And these are her words that she shared with me. She says, it's my fault because I keep going back. I'm in a trauma bond. I know it sounds crazy, but I miss him so much when he's gone. I end up answering his call and giving him another chance because I wish so badly he would actually change. I don't tell anyone because I know it's up to me to stop it for good. And it's something broken in me that can't help but to go back. I started it by being avoidant. And as I read these words, my heart just breaks for this woman who is suffering so much and I can feel this sense of fracturing and this kind of self 
abandonment. This way that she is utterly abandoning herself because of her deep belief that she is not worthy of peace and safety. So I want to start here by emphasizing the importance of the language that we use to talk about our situation, whether it's just to talk about that situation within our own awareness, our inner dialogue, or whether it's in the language that we use to justify the behaviors of people that put us in danger. And this is really common in situations of emotional violence, physical violence, even things like financial abuse, any kind of relationship abuse, this is a really common tactic is using language to reiterate these ideas of worthlessness so that the person who is the abuser can remain in control and can remain in power. The language that we use matters so much. And our self-talk, the way that we relate to our own experience is often deeply rooted in our core experience. So in our attachment style, in how we decided in the very beginning of our life, relationships work. What is our right to belong in the world? What do we need to do to be worthy of love? What do we need to give up? What needs do we need to set aside so that we can belong in relationships? You may even be noticing now listening to this that some things are coming up for you because so many of us as very young children, even inside the womb, experience these wounds to our belonging and these threats to our worthiness that become a part of how we relate to being alive. So when we talk to ourselves in a way that disregards our rights to peace and safety, when we don't believe deep within that we are worthy of care and kindness and attention, this can actually get played out in our relationship. This becomes how others relate to us as well because we're kind of carrying that belief system with us into our interactions and our conversations, even when it's subtle, even when we don't outwardly or expressly say these things. It's kind of in this embodied way that we carry ourselves, that we treat ourselves, that we care or don't care for ourselves, the way that we may or may not stand up for ourselves when we're under the threat of physical or emotional attack. I want to share with you a couple more words from my friend. She said, I realized a simple truth. He expresses and acts on every bit of self-hatred I have for myself. If I want to be free from this, I need to truly believe and accept that I deserve better. And maybe deep down I do believe that, but something evil is convincing me that this is exactly what I deserve. He asked me sincerely yesterday if I really think I deserve someone soft and gentle with me. I said yes, and he laughed so hard. I don't think either of us believed me. 
Again, these words just crack me open and I feel this heaviness in my heart that she believes that she is not deserving of someone soft and gentle. This is kind of a deep wound that's not just hers alone. And I am 100% certain that there will be a number of you listening to this who will identify with this belief system. And this is actually deeply rooted in hundreds and hundreds of years of religious oppression, the patriarchy, systemic violence towards women. We've had to be hard and firm and fierce because we've been subjected to so many years of our rights to peace and safety being taken away. Generational trauma is the signature of the experiences of our ancestors where the nervous system developed in such a way that it was primed for threat and avoidance in many ways. Sure, we long for soft and gentle relationships, and yet the reality of hundreds of years of our history has been that soft and gentle simply is not possible in the world that we live in. I'm going to share a brief kind of history of my biological family here to illustrate the generational impact of trauma. About two years ago, I submitted my DNA to Ancestry.com and within a few weeks, I had matches. I got in touch with a cousin and she was delighted to have found me. And she quickly put me in touch with my birth mother. My birth mother, I learned, had given me up for adoption when I was a year and a half old. It was because she was very, very young. She was basically a teenage runaway. And she was in an abusive relationship with my biological father. She just simply was not able to keep me safe and to take care of me. All of those reasons for putting me up for adoption made a lot of sense to me. And I responded to this news with a lot of gratitude and appreciation for her to be willing to do what she had to do and to have the courage to relinquish me from that situation to keep me safe. I recognized what she had done as an act of love for me. And I also recognized that the conditions that were created that made her be in that position in the first place were created from very early on in her life and likely in her mother's life and in her mother's life. This generational impact of our wounded sense of belonging in the world and what we have a right to and what we don't have a right to. My mother was raised to believe that she was not worthy of love. And so her behaviors as an adult reflected this belief. So I had a lot of compassion and understanding for my birth mother 
when I started to learn how difficult her life was and her sense of belonging in the world was and how utterly challenging it was for her to have a baby in that environment where her basic needs weren't being met and she was under constant threat. I received a picture of my biological father and this is where things got really, really interesting for me. Before I had met my birth family, I had divorced my now ex-husband and we had spent a lot of years in quite a bit of turmoil and emotional violence. I had actually reached a point of being pretty terrified of him, even though he had never physically assaulted me. I found myself, when we would get into a conflict, I would find myself kind of dissociating and going into a trauma response and just going to this place of utter terror. It was paralyzing. I would get like a freeze state and be in a state of paralysis. And I didn't understand this and neither did he, but in my mind, I was equating my fear response with my ex-husband's threatening kind of behaviors. And then he was getting defensive because he didn't understand why his behaviors were so threatening. And we were kind of getting trapped in this cycle of explosiveness. And I was just terrified almost all the time. And so I get this picture of my biological father. (laughs) Freud would probably laugh about this, but sure enough, he looks physically very, very similar to my ex-husband. I was quite startled by this, but also all of a sudden, so many things started to make sense, especially knowing that my mother had been in an abusive relationship with my biological father and that he was physically violent. So I experienced some of that as a young baby because I wasn't put up for adoption until I was one and a half years old. So I had kind of this marker from a very young age of associating this this set of physical features with physical violence and abuse. And so the fact that I, first of all, that I chose a partner that resembled my biological father is very, very interesting. But also my fear of my ex suddenly made a lot more sense to me when I saw this image because it wasn't necessarily fear that was based in a real present moment physical threat, but my nervous system did not know the difference because my nervous system was equating my ex-husband's physical stature, his appearance, his mannerisms, My nervous system was equating all of that with this very early experience of inconceivable violence that I witnessed as a baby. Understanding this all of a sudden really shifted my relationship with my ex to where I was actually able to share with him what I was learning about my fear response, and to some degree to hold myself accountable for my own fear-based thinking and reactive behaviors, which actually create this kind of response of reactivity. Like 
fear begets fear. My sudden tensing and bracing and clenching up in terror was having an impact on my ex that made him react with anger and defensiveness and big gestures that I found even more threatening. So it was kind of this cycle that was coming from, it was being triggered from a pre-verbal experience of trauma in my body that was still kind of alive in there for me, rather than an actual threat in the present moment. Acknowledging this and, and acknowledging that I was coming into every single interaction with my ex-husband with this traumatized nervous system, that then gave me the opportunity to take care of myself and to understand where I needed to place some boundaries so that we weren't kind of pouring gasoline on the fire, so to speak. So acknowledging that the fear response was coming from a deeply wounded place within my system that was based in my biological father's experience of trauma and my birth mother's experience of trauma, that helped me to start to put new possibilities on the map, to start to rewrite the story I was telling myself and to externalize some of that undischarged traumatic energy in various ways. About a year after that, I found more information. I got more connections with my biological father's side of the family. And a second cousin was actually kind enough to mail me a stack of photographs, not just of my bio dad as a young child, but of many generations going back. I think I have photographs going all the way back to the early 1900s. I spent a significant amount of time kind of examining the facial expressions and the physical posture of the people in these photographs. And what I noticed as I looked at these pictures was that for generations and generations, the men in the family looked as if they had experienced quite a bit of physical violence. Just kind of using a little bit of my imagination, I could see in there the heaviness of their shoulders and the kind of hardening of their eyes that they had watched people in their family physically hurting other people and perhaps been at the receiving end of some of that physical abuse as well. I could also see in the women the heaviness of holding themselves together and containing themselves and sacrificing their own experience in order to keep a family together that was characterized by this legacy of alcoholism and physical violence. There was kind of a hard set of the jaw, a hollowness of their eyes, just this kind of look of absence as if they had given up any chance or any hope of authenticity or self-expression a long, long time ago, and that they were kind of existing in survival mode, but also 
you know, having to kind of hollow out, having to go away and dissociate to be able to keep going in the midst of so much violence. So learning all this about my biological family helped me to understand that my fear response and that my aversion, my avoidance of intimate relationships comes from not just a deeply wounded place within my own lifetime, but from generations and generations of abused people. And this was showing up in my relational dynamic with my ex-husband as I was continuing to make myself available to be on the receiving end of emotional abusive behaviors and emotional violence. Even though I did understand at that point that my reactivity was actually fueling the fire to some extent, there were still a number of behaviors on his behalf that I had been tolerating and accepting and maybe even inviting with my belief system. That understanding then gave me kind of a new perspective so that I could start to look really carefully at one where I needed to put up some fierce boundaries like I talked about in the last episode, but two, how I was relating to my own sense of belonging and worthiness and safety in the world. What did I believe about myself that was actually creating the opportunity for me to be engaged in the emotional violence? And this is where I want to come back to my friend and her realization that her abusive partner is expressing and acting on the self-hatred that she has for herself. The Welcome You Podcast is a production of Safe Within Wellness, an organization dedicated to supporting survivors of complex and systemic trauma in healing their wounds of belonging and thriving in relationship to themselves. Please help us keep our content ad-free and accessible to all by donating at safewithinwellness.com. Your presence and support matter more than you know. So recognizing this belief system is so important because now we have this information about how we relate to our experience that we can then bring some care and loving awareness to. So acknowledging like, wow, I have this incredible amount of self-hatred for myself holy smokes, this can be really rattling to our system. And we can then, once we've acknowledged that, now we have some options. We can start to intentionally bring some care and nourishment to this wounded place. Where was it that I learned in my history that I'm not worthy? How did I make up these things about the world? And what did that young part of me need that it wasn't getting? And how can I then now in the present moment offer to myself that missing experience? So 
this is a really kind of multi-layered process and one that you may be able to navigate with some support from a trained somatic psychotherapist. There is a modality of therapy called Hakomi, which is a mindfulness-based somatic psychotherapy. And in this modality, basically what happens is through these little experiments in mindfulness, you have this opportunity to identify your core beliefs and, and what your kind of sense of belonging is in the world. And then because our memory is not necessarily linear, in this mindfulness state, we can touch in to this child part that decided this is how the world works and offer to this child the information that we didn't get at the time. And a lot of times that information is these strategies that you used to keep yourself safe were really, really intelligent response to a bad situation at the time. And they were so, so useful when you adopted them. You've actually, you've survived. You have lived through all of those years of difficulty and that strategy has kept you safe. However, it may no longer be useful in the current situation that you're in. Knowing that, now what possibilities are there that you may not have seen before because you were living from this place of survival? And how can we get there without necessarily going through weeks and weeks or months or years of therapy? It can be challenging, but I do think that it's possible. And I think that it starts with really starting to cultivate this caring relationship with ourselves. Even if it feels really uncomfortable at first, even if saying things to yourself like, I deserve a soft and gentle relationship, or I deserve care and attention, or I am worthy of peace and happiness. Even if saying those things to yourself feels really clunky and uncomfortable, do it anyway. The way we speak matters. The words that we use with ourselves influence the experience that we have in the world. If we are constantly saying, I can't do this, I'm not worthy, it's no use, then we make that our reality. But if we can shift the language that we're using, actually, literally, with the words, change the story that we're telling by reframing these negative self-talk thoughts into kind of a growth mindset, just like we would do with students in a classroom. Like a student who says, like, I suck at math. We might try to encourage them to change that language to, I'm learning something new and it's not easy, but I can do it. It's okay to be a learner. It's okay for this new way of relating to your experience to feel really different and uncomfortable at first. And it makes a lot of sense that it will. Before I found my biological family in the years very soon after my divorce, I was working through some of these therapeutic processes and I had started to identify that my core beliefs were very confused around being too much and not being enough. I was too much in a lot of situations and finding that I 
you know, was told I needed to contain myself. And this was both in my physical body, which has always been a large body, and also in the way that I was showing up. There was this feedback that I was constantly getting that I was loud, that I was impulsive, that I was oversharing, <laughs> and, you know, that I was just basically too much in situations. And then at the same time, I had this really conflicting set of beliefs around not being good enough, uh, not being good with money, not being good at discipline with my diet, not being good at committing or, or teaching or, you know, showing up uh, professionally. And this, both of these belief systems went way back into my earliest years. And I started to kind of experiment with loving kindness phrases for one, which is a practice. It's a, a mindfulness meditation practice where you offer yourself kind phrases. You can also practice loving kindness for other people, including for difficult people and, and in difficult relationships. And that's kind of another practice for another time. I think today we're just going to focus on how we start to bring these kind messages into our being in a way that they actually are received by our core sense of identity that for very intelligent reasons is resistant to receiving these messages. For me, being enough was, was something I was hearing a lot in my meditation trainings and, and in my therapeutic healing communities was, you know, you are enough, you are enough. And I almost had no idea what that even meant. Like my system didn't have any way to understand that or to take it in. So I'd be like, yeah, okay, I get it. I'm enough. I'm enough for what? No, I'm not. And it was just such a deeply ingrained belief that I wasn't enough or that I was too much and having to do all this work to try to find the middle and, and to show up in just the right ways that I could fit into this you know, space that society had carved out for me that said, okay, now you're, you're good enough and you're not too much, but I wasn't that shape. This was really, really challenging. So what am I even enough for? I, I didn't even understand what I was trying to help myself believe. I remember one day going out to an area near my house where I was pretty alone. I was kind of by a creek in a canyon and there was a road nearby, but there wasn't much traffic on the road. There weren't any houses around. And I started just kind of experimenting with saying this phrase out loud. And the first time I said it, I am enough. Like I, I almost felt like I had somebody's hand over my mouth. Like I wasn't allowed to say that. Like it was selfish to say that. Like I was being arrogant if I said out loud that I am enough, that I am deserving of my own care and attention. And so I, I kind of whispered it the first few times I said it. I was like, I am enough. I'm enough. And it felt really awkward coming out of my mouth. But I started to feel, as I repeated this phrase, I started to kind of slowly believe it a little bit more and to have a little bit more power behind it. And I started to say it a little louder and a little louder. I am enough. I am enough. And then emphasizing different words. I am enough. I am enough. <laughs> 
And kind of doing that theatrical sort of playing around with the language and the way it felt coming out of my mouth, believing that if I said it enough times with enough power and enough ferocity, that it would actually become true. And I would indeed be enough. After a few minutes of repeating this phrase and finding more and more power behind it, I ended up really just kind of screaming it into this canyon and hearing the echo as it bounced back to me off of these canyon walls and really giving myself permission to shout and scream, I am enough. And it became true through the expression of that, through the willingness to access my kind of primal fury and my authentic voice and the the guttural depths of my own worthiness and to move that from being trapped inside my body and stored in this tiny little ball out into the world with my voice. That in and of itself was a very powerful act that I still kind of equate to being the beginning of my journey home to myself. In the minutes after giving myself permission to scream this I am enough phrase into this canyon, I felt this wave of energy kind of surging through me. So much anger and fury and sadness mixed all together. And fortunately, I was in a setting by this creek where there wasn't anyone around where I could go to the creek. And what I decided to do is I decided to pick up some pretty large rocks and to throw them very hard into the creek and to give myself permission to externalize the feelings that were coming up in me as I opened the gateway to all of these pent up experiences that had just been balled up inside me, feeling like they weren't allowed in the world because I was too much for the world. I think this is the first practice that I will offer you today in this episode is to, in a bite-sized way, start to give yourself the message that you are deserving of your own attention, that you are enough, you are worth care, you are worthy of taking the time to tend to your own wounding. You deserve safety. You deserve to be peaceful. And this might just look like writing one of these phrases on a sticky note and putting it on the mirror. It might look like reciting some affirmations each day because we have this kind of inherent self-critic that is reinforced by the world around us. We have to do this kind of radical act of counteracting all of these messages that we're getting from the world around us, whether it's messages from our abuser, whether it's messages from media, whether it's messages from our childhood, our, our parents or our parents' parents or our great-great-great-grandparents. What we have to do now, the task in front of us becomes to put a new possibility on the map for being enough, for being deserving of peace and safety. So start with just writing I am enough on a sticky note. You might see what it's like 
to go into the bathroom and just whisper it to yourself in the mirror. You might take some time in your car when you're not around anyone who's going to hear you or judge you or think that they need to call the police because you're having a big experience. Say it. See how loud you can say it. Start to notice what happens for you, what unfolds for you as you give yourself permission to say it over and over and over again enough times so that you'll actually believe it. It might be, I deserve safety. I deserve safety. And, and saying it with some force, getting fierce about it. And you might even, if you have kids and you're in a situation where you're being abused, you might even think of saying it to your kids, imagining that they're in a situation where they're getting treated the way you're allowing yourself to be treated. And what would you do if you could stand in between them and their abuser? What would you say? And saying that to yourself, giving yourself the messages that you want your kids to get when they're in this position, giving yourself the messages that you didn't get to hear when you were a child, watching abuse happen in your family. You can also, I also recommend, here's a second practice for you. If you can identify an age or a time in your life when these wounds of belonging were created. Maybe you experienced something at the age of five, or maybe it was as a baby, or maybe it was when you were a teenager. See if you can kind of identify how old you were when these wounds happened for you. And once you've kind of identified that, if you have it, see if you can dig out a picture or a photograph of yourself at that age and post it near your workspace or carry it around in your pocket or maybe set it as the desktop of your phone so that you're connecting with this wounded child part regularly and say these phrases to that child. If you don't have a photograph or an image, that's okay. See if you can bring up an image in your mind, maybe just kind of fleshing out the details of what life was like for you at that age and and let these details be more sensory than cognitive so it might even be remembering the feel of the sheets in your bedroom or the way the light came through the windows or it might have been a favorite sweater or a stuffed animal or the scent of your mom's perfume or, or some kind of sensory detail that can help you access this kind of deeper experience, a brainstem experience of this wounded place. And send these kind thoughts, these acknowledgements of worthiness to this wounded child part. The final offering that I will give to you as a practice that you can use to start to heal these relationships to yourself is to give yourself opportunities for rhythmic sensory input. Now, this is a really interesting thing to work with because when we are in the womb, when our body is actually developing, the first part of our brain to develop is our brainstem. When this part of our brain is developing, the sensory information that it's getting really impacts its development. So that would be things like your mother's heart rate, the rhythm of her heart. It would also be things like movement, nourishment, hydration. When the input that we're getting, whether it's in the womb or as a young child, when that input is arrhythmic, 
when it's unpredictable, this is very stressful for our system. We become kind of on permanent hyper alert, always tracking and looking for the threat because it might come at any time. We don't know when the danger is going to come, but we know that it will come because all of a sudden we get these spikes in adrenaline or in someone else's behavior around us, our heart rate increases, and we're getting all of this information through our senses that we're not safe. If, however, we are fortunate enough to be in the womb in an environment that is stable and rhythmic and predictable and free from stress and anxiety and threats or spikes in fear, reactivity, then what we experience is we experience rhythmic sensory input. So we have a regular steady heartbeat that we're hearing. We might be experiencing gentle movement like swaying back and forth or rocking as our mothers walk or move with us through space in a rhythmic and predictable way. If our experience as a fetus or as a young child did not have enough rhythmic sensory input, basically our nervous system learns that the world is dangerous, relationships are dangerous, fear and threat are everywhere, and I need to always be ready. And this is very, very taxing for our nervous system. So something that we would do in trauma work and in therapy is to give as many opportunities for experiencing rhythmic sensory input as we can, because we can go back and revisit developmental tasks that we didn't get to achieve, and we can add information to our system that wasn't available at the time. There's lots of things you can do for rhythmic sensory input. Walking is a pretty simple way to get rhythmic sensory input. Dancing, movement, drumming, playing any kind of music. For me, it's been bluegrass music has been a wonderful outlet for me. You can also just focus on the rhythmic movement that's already happening in your body. And one of my favorite ways to do this is just by noticing your breath. So even right now, I invite you, wherever you are, to just pause for a minute and take a few full breaths all the way in and all the way out. And to bring attention to the movement of your body, the rising and falling of your chest, the movement of your belly, the expansion and contraction of your rib cage, as you breathe in and breathe out. And you don't have to breathe in any certain way. You don't have to shape the breath or manipulate it. Just letting yourself breathe naturally and noticing this coming and going of breath, the rhythm of the breath that's happening all by itself without you having to do anything to make it happen. And you can find a longer guided mindfulness meditation attached to this episode on the welcomeyoupodcast.com website. And so I encourage you to check that out. Spending intentional focused time simply attending to your senses and to breath is a wonderful way to give yourself the message, one, that you are deserving of your own care and attention. Two, the message that you are enough, that you are worthy of taking the time to slow down and tend to your experience of being alive in the world, that just this act of breathing 
is enough. Three, the breath is really closely tied to our autonomic nervous system. And slowing down and bringing attention to the sensations of breathing is a great way to regulate and to calm your nervous system in moments of reactivity. So we've been talking a lot in this episode about avoidance, but also about how our self-worth and our identities around belonging are shaped by real experiences of trauma, whether it's in our own lifetime or whether it's ancestral. It doesn't really matter. These experiences of being worthy of safety, being deserving of care, they live deep, deep in our nervous system. And they're kind of embedded in our DNA, but it's not a death sentence. Having had many, many generations of trauma or even just a singular experience of relational trauma in your lifetime does not mean that you are doomed to forever and ever repeat this cycle of relational abuse because we can put new possibilities on the map for how to relate to our experience. And the very first step is the noticing, is the bringing attention to what's actually happening and to how we're relating to these experiences so that we can then take care of ourselves and try something different. So that chime means that it is time for Get Down and Dirty with Dr. Cindy where you can call in with your questions and challenges, and I'll do what I can to offer some mindfulness-based practices and therapeutic skills that you can apply in response to what you're facing. You can call 719-759-9471 and leave an up to three minute voicemail sharing your story. And I encourage you to do this even if you aren't sure whether your story is relevant to anyone else because One of the tendencies of survivors of relational trauma and emotional abuse is to minimalize their story and to believe that they're the only one experiencing this. The Buddhists say, no mud, no lotus. And this is kind of a metaphor for how when we are willing to get our hands dirty or to explore these areas of difficulty, then we have this opportunity to turn poison into medicine and to blossom. So let's go ahead and dive into the muck with today's caller. Hey, Dr. Cindy. I listened to your first podcast about um, attachment styles, and I identified with the avoidant attachment style. And I see that now coming up in my marriage where... I um, avoid everything, um, and um, our marriage is really, um, like, devoid and empty feeling. And in the past, I could always just leave whoever I was with, but now we have kids, and he's a good guy. I'm just realizing, like, there's a part of me that doesn't want to go further because I, I never have or doesn't feel safe. But I don't really know how to change that since all I've ever known is um, pushing people away. So any advice to help um, save my marriage so I can remain with my kids and my husband 
in a nourishing way. Thanks. So first of all, I just want to say that I'm so glad you called and that you brought this challenge to our listeners. What I want to acknowledge is that being avoidant and identifying yourself as avoidant is not a death sentence. It does not necessarily mean that your relationship is doomed because you have this kind of core patterning around avoidance. The other thing is that it's really great that you can notice your avoidance. So this is one of the reasons that I'm offering these podcasts and this information in the first place is that by identifying our attachment style, that then gives us the opportunity to work skillfully with what's here, with what's arising. So you've identified yourself as avoidant, and now the challenge becomes bringing some mindfulness and some inquiry into your practice of noticing how it shows up in your day-to-day life. And what I would encourage you to do is to start to see if you can identify the moments when that avoidance voice gets pretty loud in your system. And then give yourself a chance during those moments to slow down and get really curious about what's happening for you. This might be just noticing the sensations in your body in that moment of avoidance. It doesn't have to mean going into this kind of heady place of trying to figure out why you're avoidant and why you're feeling this way right now and what you can do differently to try to save a marriage and all of those things. Just giving yourself permission to have the feelings that you're having in the moment that you're having them. So, ah, avoidance is here. And how do I notice that? Might be just a bracing or a tensing or emptiness. You can notice this and and just slow down with the felt sense of this experience in your body as it is actually happening. This is actually kind of the antidote to avoidance, right? Because instead of trying to run away from our experience, we're giving ourselves permission to be with it. Then we have the opportunity to ask this really important question. How can I best take care of myself given what's arising? Given what I'm feeling here in this moment, noticing all of this avoidance, what do I need? What's needed so that I can best care for myself in this situation? It might be that you need some time with yourself. Sometimes I think avoidance and this kind of claustrophobia that avoidant folks can get in relationship is basically kind of a homesickness for ourselves. Because if we are avoidant, that means we most likely developed this strategy of being on our own and got pretty good at it when we were kids. And so we have a pretty strong relationship with our inner world. And I recharge and renew myself in solitude. And I need certain chunks of time in order to be able to come home to myself, to revisit with myself so that I feel fully alive and prepared to be relational. Without that time in, I don't have the energy to be outwardly energized. This is just one of the ways that you can kind of work skillfully with avoidance as it arises, is bring attention down into the body and notice what you're actually feeling in the moment. The next thing I would recommend to you in your situation, especially since you said that your husband is a 
good guy and that your relationship in general is relatively emotionally safe, even though there is this kind of longing under the surface, this unmet need to be true to your authentic nature. It does sound like there might be the possibility of having a conversation with him, a compassionate, nonviolent communication with him around what you're noticing and what you're experiencing and what your needs are underlying what's arising for you. If he can receive that without it being, you know, something he has to defend himself against or something that he's doing wrong in the relationship, but more something that you've noticed is a pattern that you brought with you into this relationship from your past and now it's showing up and you want to take care of the relationship and and hold it with some loving awareness because you want to stay with your kids, you want to stay with your family. That then gives you the opportunity as a couple to engage in this kind of skillful, mindful inquiry around this experience that's happening. So can you identify together what the triggers are for this feeling of avoidance? What are the behaviors or the conditions that are creating this feeling for you of needing to avoid or run away or, or do it differently? What are the patterns that you guys have sunken into? What are the patterns that you've developed over the years of your marriage that may actually be adding to the tension in the relationship or adding to the exiling of these parts of yourself that are just really longing to be seen and to be known? And how can you maybe make some space to deepen your relationship around that inquiry together into how you relate to being a human being in the world and what it means to belong? I also kind of wonder if it would be a possibility, if he would be open to some of these affirmational phrases maybe just adopting a practice together of lifting each other up. Because one of the things that happens in relational trauma, whether it's in our current relationship or we're carrying it with us from the past, is this kind of sense of worthlessness or not being good enough or not having the support or the language or the being seen and being known that's lifting us up into our truest, most beautiful versions of ourselves. So in addition to saying, I am enough, I am worthy of my own care and attention. What if you guys could offer that to each other? And again, it may feel awkward and clunky at first to just look at your partner and say, just want to let you know that you are enough for me. Just want to let you know that you are worthy of care and attention and safety. And there might be a couple of different ways that you can show this with your actions and your behaviors in addition to just saying the words. But the more you say them, the more you'll speak them into truth, both for yourself and for the relationship in general. So we can practice all of these things that I've mentioned in this episode inwardly for our own wounded parts. But we can also share them with the people that we love the people who we're in relationship with, with our kids, with our partner, with our family, and let them know that they are enough because they're certainly not hearing it enough. So thank you so much for calling in. 
I would like to invite anyone who's listening right now who is experiencing any kind of challenge or relational struggle or just a question that you have around your relationship to yourself to please go ahead and give me a call. I love receiving your questions and I look forward to welcoming you again next time you find your way to the Welcome You podcast. The Welcome You podcast is a production of Safe Within Wellness, an organization dedicated to supporting survivors of complex and systemic trauma in healing their wounds of belonging and thriving in relationship to themselves. Please help us keep our content ad-free and accessible to all by donating at safewithinwellness.com. Your presence and support matter more than you know.